0: Well, good morning, family. Everybody doing well? A week or so ago, we we're in the throes of the depths of Arctic winter, and now it seems like we're in the midst of spring, just all of a sudden. Uh, I'm enjoying that. Well, as we come to the to the Word this morning, let's take a moment and let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, we are so grateful, grateful for the opportunity to gather together once again as the family... Um, we are blessed that we have freedom to do that. There are so many of our brothers and sisters, even this very day, millions of them who are in in nations and situations where there is not freedom or is not safety uh, as they gather as believers. And uh, we have that blessing to do that, to gather here in person and to gather online uh, such a number uh, each week, joining us there, Father, we're grateful for that. We do pray that you would bring an end soon to this pandemic. We long to be all of us together, face to face. We miss the fellowship of of each one, and uh, are glad for the the uh, continuing movement towards getting back to normal as more and more come each week. Father, we are grateful as well for the privilege of being part of your mission. Thank you for what you've. Uh, have allowed us to to raise to be um, more engaged in helping our our sister Emily and uh, meeting her needs and and um, so thank you for that and and now, as we come to your word, we are so grateful that you have given to us your inspired your inerrant word that you have preserved through the ages that what we have we are confident is is Accurate, and we are—we uh, have great translations. We can be—we um, don't need to be Greek and Hebrew scholars. That uh, the translations we have are really very good, and so we can read what you have written to us and learn. So, Father, thank you for that blessing. And and now, as we come to study together, I pray that you would open our spiritual eyes and ears, and prevent us from being those who just hear, who just listen. Father, may we be those who take and put it into practice. So guide us in our study this morning and bless us for, Lord, we're needy people. To that end, we commit ourselves and ask your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, open your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel in chapter 9 this morning. Last week we were in chapter 8. as We're we're going through the life of this amazing man, the prophet and judge. Samuel, the last of the judges, the first of the prophets, who also, in many ways, served as a priest. He is a remarkable character and a man of amazing character, a great model for us to learn from. Last week in chapter 8, however, the elders of Israel came, we saw, and they, they came to Samuel and basically handed him a pink slip, saying, it's time for you to retire, and they demanded, as it were, of Samuel and of God that they wanted a king. Today, we're going to rush through chapters 9 through 11, and it's a good sign that when you got here, the first service wasn't still here. That's a good sign that we're going to get out of here before uh, supper tonight. No, we're going to fly through the chapter. We can't do what we usually do. I try to read the whole passage and work our way through that, well, obviously, we're just going to have to hit some highlights this morning. But we're going to look this morning at Saul when he, the first king, as he becomes king, and um, as we see this, I want us to note this morning five keys to being a great king. Five lessons that God aims to teach Samuel in these chapters before us. We're going to do nine, ten, and eleven. And uh, as God aims to to make Saul a great king. And you might wonder, well, what does that really have to do with me? Because I'm not a king. You're not a king. The likelihood of any of us becoming king is pretty much nil. Okay, so so what does this have to do with us? And I think it's a great question. The answer to that is the same five keys that make a great king are also essential to you and me if we want to live a great life. If we want to live a successful life. Not a life that We'll make it on the cover of Money Magazine or Newsweek or People Magazine as a great life, but a life where that's great in the terms of the eyes of God. When this life is over and you stand before Jesus Christ, he says, well done, you good and faithful servant. The type of life that Moses writes about in Psalm 90 where he prays, Teach us to number our days rightly that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. In other words, a life well lived. How do we do that? Well, the same things that God is going to be working to teach Saul in these passages are things that will as well be essential for you and me if we want to have a great life. So, with that said, let's jump in, because we've got a lot of ground to cover. Verse 1 of chapter 9. And again, I hope you have your Bibles open so you can follow along. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zerar, the son of Bekaroth, the son of Afiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man, There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. I realized first service, by the way, as I read those verses, I realized I have never read these words out loud. And I'm reading those names and going, oh, Lord, help me now to get them right. Didn't stumble that one or this one. If any of you have ever been there and you're reading in Sunday school or something, you just, oh, I hate reading names. because Yeah, well, I was just there, both services, going, oh, Lord, help me now. But we made it through, didn't we? But what's the purpose? We read of all these names. We read about people we don't know about. What's the point? Well, it got us to Saul. We're meeting Saul, who we know is going to become the first king of Israel giving us a little bit of background information. And we learn from this that King Saul is a Benjaminite. That means he's of the tribe of Benjamin. You remember that the land of Israel, when the Israelites came into the land under Joshua, the land was divided up among the twelve tribes, and they each got portions. And this map kind of gives the rough boundaries of those the benjaminites the land of benjamin was really just right there in the center of the land of israel right just north of judah and little plot of ground that's not big enough to have the word benjamin on top of it so that's why i put a red circle there so you can see that's where it is saul's father is named Kish, and we we read here that he's a wealthy man got a lot of bucks Saul is, as well we read, is the most handsome man in all Israel. That's what people used to say about me. Uh, no, no, not so much ever. That's a big statement. To be the most handsome man in the country says something. Also says he is very tall, head and shoulders taller than everyone else, a, a foot or more taller than everybody else in the land. And doesn't say here, but we also learn about Saul that he's that he's about 35 to 40 years old. Now, how do we know that if it doesn't say it? And it never actually gives us an age of when he becomes king of Israel. But what we do know is that just a few chapters from now, which isn't very long in terms of time, it's just months from this point, That Saul has a son whose name is Jonathan who is old enough that he leads men into battle. He's a commander of a force of men, which means that he's at least in his late teens, probably around 20 or in his early 20s. And that puts Saul as a man probably of 35 to 40 years of age at least to have a son that old. So. What else we learn is that some of Kish's donkeys, Saul's dad's donkeys, have wandered off and they've gotten lost. And so Kish sends his son Saul along with a servant to go look for them. And uh, their home, now we've moved to a satellite image. I managed to get one from back in that day and time. Um, <laughs> no, not obviously not. Um, and I just, we drew kind of rough borders. We don't know exactly where they are of Benjamin there on the map. So you can see, and Saul's hometown is the town of Gibeah. Gibeah is just about four miles north of Jerusalem as we know it today. Again, if you were here in weeks before, Jerusalem is not the capital of Israel at this time. It's not a city of any great standing um, and I put Curious jerim on there, just if you remember back a few weeks ago, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God is located there in Curious jerim Just help you get your bearings. Now, so Saul's home is in Gibeah. Dad's donkeys are lost. He sends Saul out to go look for them and they head, the Bible tells us as we read the passage, Which we're not reading all these verses, that they go up through the, the high, or the hills of Ephraim, the high country of Ephraim. So that means that they go up to the north, because the region of Ephraim is just there to the north of Benjamin. And so I drew out their, their map, I'm sure, of their journeys exactly as it went. Obviously, if you're going looking for donkeys, you're not going in straight lines, so they're and I don't know how they did it, but they made a journey here, and it sure it was probably somewhere thirty to fifty miles over the period of about uh, not about over a period of three days. They've been on the road for three days, futilely searching. they haven't found them. they're on their way back home, and as they're on their way home, they're passing by a town. And Saul's servant says, hey, uh, I, you know what? There is, I hear, a seer, a prophet in this town. The town is Rama. And he says, he's held in high regard by the people, and I hear that everything that he says comes true. Maybe if we stop and ask him, he can tell us what happened to your dad's donkeys. And so they stop there at Rama, which we know, if we've been paying attention, is the hometown of Samuel, the prophet. Now, the day before this, as we read again in the passage, which we don't have time to read, but if you read, you'll discover that the day before this, God spoke to Samuel and said, Hey, Samuel, tomorrow, about this time, I'm sending a young man who's going to come and... You'll, he'll come right to you, and you need to anoint this man as king. And now, just as Saul and his servant come to the gates and start entering the gates of Ramah to look for the prophet, here comes the prophet Samuel on his way out. He's getting ready to go up to a sacrifice and to dinner. We pick up the reading now in verse 18. That gets us here. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go, with, go before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go, and I will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? And Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite? And from the, least, from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought him up to the hall and gave them a place at the head of those of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. So I'm sure that Saul was flabbergasted as he arrives here, as they come into Ramah. Here is the first person they see in the town, and it is the prophet. They don't have to search for the prophet. He's right there. And in fact, this prophet Samuel invites them to go to dinner and to spend the night. And on the way to dinner, Samuel says to Saul, You and your father's family are what everyone in Israel is desiring. And Saul is, I'm sure he's confused here. He doesn't know what Samuel is talking about, but he says, Thank you, but you know, we're nobody. Nobody's special. We're from the you know the least of the tribes of Israel the tribe of Benjamin got a little piece of ground because it wasn't a big tribe to start with. And then about 100 to 200 years before this the whole tribe was almost wiped out due to a really interesting story there at the end of the book of Judges you can go back and read it for yourself. And um he says our tribe is small little we're nothing and of them our clan isn't really anything special his daddy's rich but you know it doesn't come from big roots here he's saying but still Samuel seated them at the in the seat of honor at this dinner in the banquet hall and he said Saul we've been waiting for you to get here and we've put aside the best of the dinner the best portions of everything and the cook's bringing it out right now you guys eat and enjoy and then that night took him down to the city to Ramah and Samuel puts them up for the night and, and they stay up in the guest quarters, up on the roof of the house, the nice place. That's the prime place to stay. It's cool in those evenings. Good sleeping. Verse 26, then at break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, get up and I may send you on your way. And Saul arose and both he and Samuel went out into the street. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Verse 1 of chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on, his, on Saul's head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over His people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord. And you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over His heritage. So that next morning, as Saul was leaving early in the morning, the old prophet took him aside privately. And then he poured this oil on his head, a whole flask of oil. You and I, if somebody did that to us, we'd be a little ticked, we'd be upset, we'd be offended. Uh, somebody just poured oil over me. That was, however, a sign of honor. In Israel, the the priests were anointed, there was consecrating, setting them aside for ministry. He's the first king. And now sets in motion the, the tradition, every king is anointed They're consecrated to serve. But Samuel tells Saul that he explains that God has a special purpose for him. Saul is going to be king. He's going to reign over God's people, Israel. Now, I'm sure that Saul has already felt that the events over the last 12 or so hours have been a little bit bizarre, very strange, very interesting, and kind of exciting But this, really, I'm sure, just almost knocked him over. Just out of the blue, here's the prophet of God saying, Saul, you are going to be king. And I think most any of us at this point would go, me? Are you serious? But notice what I really want to call our attention to is something... That was reiterated three different ways in one verse. Verse one, three times something is said a little bit differently, and any time that something's repeated a lot, it ought to get our attention. That this is significant, it's important. And what he says here, let me just read it says that Saul will be prince over his, that's God's people. It says that Saul will reign over the people of the Lord then it says Saul will be prince over his, God's, heritage. Two important concepts here. The first is this, that the people, the nation of Israel, belong to God. They're God's people. Secondly, it implies here that Saul is a prince. Did you notice it doesn't ever call Saul here king? Saul is called king other places and God calls Saul a king, and Samuel calls Saul a king. He's called a king, but here in this context where he says you're going to be prince over my people, the people I own, God says you're going to be prince, not king. I think that's significant. I think the point is that Saul, you are going to serve as a king, but you're serving as a king under the sovereign king. You're serving as a king under God, and you're caring for God's people. And here I see the first principle, the first key for a good king, a great king, and that is he's going to live for God's purposes. God has a purpose in making Saul to be a king. And it's not so that Saul can serve himself. It's not so that Saul can make it all about him, but rather so that he can serve God and serve God's people. That is what God intends for kings to do. To not make it about themselves, but about God and His people. That's what God has made leaders in the church to be. Pastors and elders. We are to shepherd God's flock. It's not our church. It's God's church. We serve under Him. And actually so it is with every one of us. God has called us As believers, He has called us out of the world, not so that we might serve ourselves, but that we might serve Him. Notice what 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says. And He, that's Jesus, died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sakes died and was raised. Jesus Christ died on the cross to save us from our sins, but not so that we can go live for ourselves, but so that we can go live for Him. God has rescued us for a purpose. He has saved us from sin and made us a, a, His own people as we saw last week. He's done that for a reason. For a purpose. We love Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. But the next verse says this. It says that for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We've been saved by God's grace, but not so that we can do anything we want. We are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus, created for a purpose to do works that He designed before we were ever created. Before we were ever born, God created works for us to do, and He created us to do those works. You have a purpose in life to serve Jesus Christ. And to serve His people. That's the first key for a great life. Back to Saul. Now anyone could come up to you or come up to me and say, Hey, you're going to be king. We could even pour oil over your head. And Would that make you king? No, it wouldn't. Would it be any guarantee that you ever would be king? Probably not. How do you know that what they're saying is true? How is... Saul, to know that what Samuel is saying is true. I mean, is this all just some elaborate joke that his college frat buddies, you know, designed to, uh, catch him while he was away? He's coming home? Or maybe this was a mistake. You know, Samuel was supposed to anoint the guy who came into town, but, you know, he accidentally got delayed, had a flat on his camel or something, and, and, uh, you know, Saul came in ahead of him just a little bit, and, and uh, by mistake, he's got anointed. How do you know this is what's really this is really right? It's not just a series of curious coincidences, but this is the hand of God orchestrating all these events. How do you know that? So Samuel says, pick it up, verse two, chapter ten. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has, has ceased to care about the donkeys and he's anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men are going up to God at Bethel and they will meet you there. One carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And he will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from their hand. As Saul returns home to Gibeah, Samuel predicts that he'll have three encounters. We've just read two. There's another one we'll read in a moment. That will confirm that all of this is from God. That God is controlling all the circumstances. And there is a lesson here, by the way, because God controls all of our circumstances. Life is not random. There's a theological term for this. It is the providence of God. The fact that God is in control of every detail of our life. Do you know that? Do you believe that? That reality, the reality of that truth is why the New Testament says in Romans eight twenty-eight, and we know that God causes, for those who love God, uh, things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. When we live for God's purpose, we can be 100% assured, guaranteed that God is in control and He's working for good in any and every circumstance in our life. The second key for a great king... It's for him to know and to trust that God is in control of every circumstance. So he will rest in God's providence. So it is for you and me in life. A great key to living life well is to understand God is in control of our circumstances and we can rest in that reality. It's easy for us to think of that and to see that at times in our blessings and in our joys. When everything is going well, we go, God is is working out great things here. God is blessing. It's more difficult for us to see and more difficult for us to think of it when the wheels are falling off and we're in the midst of a disaster. And we wonder, is God really in charge? But it is still true that in every Challenge in the midst of every problem, even in every tragedy, even in every heartbreak, God is in control and He is directing our circumstances. In a, in Siloam Springs, Arkansas, right across from the campus of John Brown University, there is a cemetery. In that cemetery, there is a most unusual headstone. That marks the graves of a young couple, friends of Janet's and mine when we were in college. I don't have time to tell you everything that's on that headstone, but the last line is what I want to just focus this morning. The last line says this, God is good and he makes no mistakes. The parents of that young couple wrote that on that tombstone as they buried their children. Is God still in control in that time? They say, yes, He is. He makes no mistakes. There are no accidents with God. In everything, God is working for you and me as believers in Christ, as God's children, we can be assured that in everything, God is working. He is working to bless us or He is working to teach us or He is working to strengthen us. He is working to build us. He is working to encourage us. He is working to equip us. He's giving us opportunities to trust Him. He is giving us opportunities to minister to others. We don't always know what God is doing, but we can have assurance that He is at work. That reality, the reality of this truth, gives us peace, it gives us calm, it gives us strength, it gives us courage. It even, as James says in James chapter 1, it gives us joy in the midst of our trials. Back to the story. Verse 5, chapter 10. After that you will come to Gibeah Elohim where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp and tambourine and flute and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Samuel tells Saul that he'll have a third encounter of a different kind or, or, on this journey home. Saul will encounter these prophets, and the Holy Spirit will come upon him. And Then you will begin to prophesy along with them, Samuel says. God's going to turn you into a different man. And then you simply go and do whatever comes to you because God is with you. A third key for a great king is he follows the leading of God's Spirit. In the Old Testament times, when we look on the pages of Scripture, we discover that the God's Spirit only comes upon certain people at certain times. And actually, we'll see in Saul's story, well, we won't in our study, but if you read the rest of the book, you'll see in Saul's story that there comes a time where God's Spirit departs from Saul. Because of Saul's sin, because of Saul's rebelling against God, the Spirit of God leaves him. Things are different in our day. In the New Testament, since Jesus Christ came, things are different. The Bible says that all who receive, all who trust Jesus Christ as their Savior, God's Spirit comes and takes up residence within us. We all have, as believers in Christ, have the Holy Spirit living in us. Ephesians chapter one verse thirteen says this: In Him, that's in Christ, you also, when you when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Him. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He came upon you and in you. And it goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 it says, do you not know that your body is a temple, a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit who is within you whom you have from God? Speaking to believers. By the way, the Bible tells us that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ that we Became a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. That's because the Holy Spirit has come upon us. We don't have time to dig in depth in this this morning, but just understand that the Holy Spirit does many things for us. The Bible talks about the Holy Spirit. One thing He does is He convicts us of sin. He aids our conscience and convicts us sin. He helps us to grow in righteousness to become more like Jesus Christ. He empowers us to do good works. He empowers us to serve Christ. For those and other things that the Holy Spirit does in us, the Bible commands for us and tells us to not, do not quench the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Do not put out His fire in us. Do not fight His work in our life. He tells us not to do that because there's a tendency for us to do that. You see, there's a tendency for us to just push the Spirit aside because we want to go our own way. That's why it's a key not only for a king to be a great king, but for you and me, if we're going to live a great life, a successful life as a believer in Christ, we are to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in our life. Now, as predicted, all these things happened to Saul on his way home. He, uh, he met the two guys and, and uh, they told him what about his dad and the donkeys. He met the three folks and uh, they gave him two loaves of bread. By the way, lunch was included in the ticket home. I think that's exactly what God was doing. And then thirdly, he meets these guys. And I don't know what the chances are of meeting three people, one of them carrying three goats. Who carries goats? Anyway, you know, usually you uh, drive them or you drag them along on a leash or something. I don't imagine you usually go around carrying three goats. And then the prophets and the band. He tells them the instruments in the band. I mean, everything down to the detail. Certainly God made all these things happen. But interestingly, when Saul gets home, he doesn't tell anybody any of this. He doesn't tell them, I was anointed king, you'll never believe this. Never, none of these things, he just keeps it in. Sometime later, Samuel calls for a national meeting at Mizpah. Mizpah's a place up just north of and to the west a little bit of Rama, Samuel's hometown, and it's kind of a favorite gathering place for the nation. It's a well-suited place for a large number of people. He calls for a national meeting. All, at least all of the leaders of all the tribes came. Maybe, you know, probably thousands of people show up. The purpose is to select the king. Pick up the story now in verse 19. Samuel is in the middle of a sermon. He says, but t- today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your disasters. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Line up, folks. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. Don't know how it was worked, but there was some lottery set up. As Saul gathered the leaders together, they they determined what we're going to do is we're going to have a lottery to see who's king. Let God choose the king by lottery, and so they go through, and of the twelve tribes, Benjamin is taken. Then out of Benjamin, they they take have a lottery amongst all the clans, and the clan of the Matrites is taken. Then among the clan you take the family, and among the family, you come to Saul. But, when they sought him, he could not be found. Verse 22, so they inquired again of the Lord. Is there still a man to come? Did we maybe get it wrong? Did we miss it? And the Lord said, No, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Off to the side of all the people, there's all, where all the camels and donkeys and everything else is, and all the luggage, and somewhere over there, Saul has gone and tried to disappear. doesn't tell us why. Maybe he really is humble, or maybe he's just afraid. Maybe he's embarrassed. Don't really know. But there he is. They have to go look for him. And verse 23, they find him when they ran and found him there. And when he stood among all the people, he was taller than all the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each to his own house, his own home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. So, the king is chosen by lottery. And, again, it's no coincidence, it's one more confirmation is the choice of God, because, now here again, by, quote, random chance, amongst all the people, He's drawn in three different lotteries. It comes down to to Saul. Obviously, God has worked this all out to the detail. The people, when they see him, they are impressed. He's huge. He's big. He's strong. Wow, is he good looking? And everybody loves him. And they turn. They say, "Long live the king! Long live the king!" It's a big celebration. They've got a king. They all love him. Well, if we go on to the next verse, I stop short of a verse, but if you go on to the next one, over in the corner there's a few guys going, I don't think he's gonna be very good. It says a few worthless men. By the way, isn't that always the way it is when a leader is chosen in so many almost everywhere? There's always somebody or somebody's over to the side. I don't Everyone headed home. But God moved in the hearts of some men of valor who dedicated themselves to serving Saul. Instead of them going home, they followed Saul home. You're our king. We're with you no matter what. Valiant men, brave men, gallant men. You know, every leader needs men like that. They were a gift from God. You notice it said God moved their heart. What a gift from God. But the thing of most note here is not these men of valor, nor is it all the accolades of the people, nor is it just the the fact of how God moved the circumstances. I think the most notable thing here is verse 25, where Samuel provides instruction. It says that he basically led Saul and all the people through a seminar. He says, let me tell you, let me explain God's word about the rights and about the duties of a king. For everybody's benefit. This is what a king is. This is what a king does. This is what a king has the authority to do. This is what a king does not do. And then when he's finished, it says he takes everything that he said and he writes it all down, puts it into a book. You know, how to be a king for dummies. And rolls it up and deposits it. You see, it leads to, I think, the fourth key for a great king. A great king will know and he will obey God's word. God provided Saul with all the instructions that he needed to be a good king. He heard it in his ears. All the people hear the, what he has the rights to do. So he's, the people get, okay, when the king says this, we gotta do it. He's given authority. And he's given instructions. Unfortunately, as the years go by, apparently, the book of instructions sat on the shelf, never to be opened again, only to collect dust. What a sad thing. Before again, we're hard on Saul. These aren't just instructions for a king. They're instructions for us. If we want to live life well, we need to know and we need to obey God's Word. How many times have you sat there in life and just wondered, I wish I knew what to do. I wish I knew what God wanted me to do here. How much time do you and I spend learning God's Word? He hasn't left us without guidance and without instruction. He's given us a whole book. The sad thing is, most believers know little of what's here. And Even sadder, we don't really have any excuse. We've got access to it. Hmm. If we want to live a great life, a successful life, we need to invest in learning God's Word and put it into practice in our life. Well, Saul is now the first king of Israel, but can he lead? And if he can lead, will people follow? Great questions. We know that Saul is big. We know that Saul is is tall. We know that Saul is good-looking, we know that everybody loves him, but can he lead? And then will people follow him or will they follow the worthless guys? who What's going to happen? Well, the first test of this new king comes about, probably about a month later. Verse 1 of chapter 11. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. Again, names we don't know. Nahash, though, is leader of the Ammonites. The Ammonites are the people off to the east of Israel. The Ammonites are there, and the city of Jabesh-Gilead is up to the north there of Gad. It's this place, and Nahash of Ammon goes and they attack the city of Jabesh-Gilead. They besiege it. They put their army around it. And, you know, what a siege does. They wait it out until the people give up or die. The people in Jabesh Gilead, the leaders, apparently they realize that they are seriously outgunned, seriously outmanned. They don't have a chance against the Ammonites. And so they send out a message, okay, we'll surrender. Verse two. The terms of the surrender come. But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them, on this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on Israel. Wow, those are harsh conditions of surrender, we might say. The elders of Jabesh said to him, uh, give us seven days' respite, and we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. This is really bizarre. First, Nahash's terms. Secondly, that the people come back and say, Well, on second thought, <laughs> give us seven days. And we're going to send messengers out. Now, they've besieged the city, which means they've got it surrounded Which means the only way you're going to get messengers out is they're going to let them out. The really bizarre thing is that Nahash says, okay. And so they do. Obviously, Nahash doesn't think anybody's going to come. Well, strange situation. Anyway, the message gets to King Saul, verse 6. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words and his anger was greatly kindled and he took a yoke of oxen and he cut them into pieces and he sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out as one man. When they mustered them at Bezek, The people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah, 30,000. Will Saul lead Israel? Yes. He takes decisive action. Taking your oxen and cutting them up and sending them out makes a statement. Will people follow? Apparently, overwhelmingly, 330,000 of them answer the call to go to battle. Pretty impressive. Well, they go, they go out, they defeat the Ammonites, and they liberated the town of Jabesh Gilead. The battle's over, verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring those men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death today, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Saul has been vindicated. He has demonstrated that he's up to the job as king. And so a bunch of the people are like, wait, where are those worthless guys who are who are naysayers and who are critical of Saul? Bring him out here, and let's kill him. And Saul, to his credit, stands up and stops them in their tracks. Nobody else dies today. But notice what he said, why he said this. It's very important. He says, The Lord has worked salvation in Israel. The Lord delivered them by His power. The victory did not come because of their army. The victory did not come because of Saul's leadership. The victory came... Because God brought the victory. That's what Saul says. And that is critical. It's the fifth and last of our keys to being a great king and for us to live a great and successful life. Rely on God's power. It's not about how big your army is. It's not about how great your intellect is. It's not about how superlative your resources are. It's not about how shrewd your tactics. It's like Samuel's mother sang, if you were here back when we started this this series, back in chapter 2, Samuel's mother sang a song. And in it, she said this in chapter 2, she said, Not by might shall a man prevail. We don't win by the strength, our own strength. It's like God says in Zechariah chapter 4, where God says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Whether it's Saul reigning as a king, whether it's going into battle... As an army, or whether it is you and me trying to live tomorrow as a believer in Jesus Christ, if we want to, if we will live successfully, it's not going to happen because we are smart and we are strong and we are whatever. It's going to live because we are relying on God's power. We do not succeed by our own talents. We succeed by trusting the Lord. Saul appeared to the people of Israel as he does to pretty much us today. By our world standards, Saul was a great candidate for king. He was impressively good-looking, beautiful. He was impressive in his stature and in his presence. He had a commanding presence just because he was tall and strong. He was wealthy, rich. He was popular. Everybody says, man, that's a pedigree for success in business and in, and in politics. But God took a man with all that, and in these three chapters, He sought to teach him what he really needed to succeed. Five Lessons. Live for God's purposes, not yours. Rest in God's providence. Know that God is in control. Follow the leading of God's Spirit. Learn and obey God's Word. Rely on God's power. Unfortunately, as king, Saul quickly abandoned all five of these lessons. Every one of them. Brothers and sisters, let's learn from his failure. And let's live by these lessons God has given to us this day. Well, Father, we want to live well. We want to, as Moses said, to present to you a heart of wisdom, a life well lived. So, Father, may we take these things and put them into practice. We confess the reason that that they are here in the scripture is because we have a tendency to not do these things. We have a tendency to live for ourselves rather than living for you. We have a tendency to forget that you're in control and we worry and we fret and we get angry and we get mad and we get frustrated rather than relax because we know that you're you're at work. We tend to follow our desires rather than following Your Spirit. We tend to ignore Your Word. and We tend to trust our own talents and our own strengths rather than leaning upon You, calling upon You, and relying on You. Lord, change us. Make these things true in our life. So that we might live well, that you might be honored. This we ask in Jesus. Name.